The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is journalist and wellness expert, Annie Hopper. Her, we're going to be talking about her new book, Wired for Healing, Remapping the Brain to Recover from Chronic and Mysterious Illnesses. Health and wellness expert Annie Hopper was stricken with a ravaging condition her doctors couldn't resolve. She had no choice but to try to find a cure herself. She didn't just find one, she created it. Based on a landmark scientific study that revealed the powerful link between the limbic section of our brain and the functions of the body, uh, Annie has empowered thousands living with chronic illness. In 2008, she founded the Dynamic Neural Retraining System, recognized by the Canadian Brain Injury Association, the American Academy of Environmental Medicine, and the Canadian Counseling and Psychotherapy Association. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here. Oh, thank you, Catherine. It's nice to be here. So you have developed chronic pain, uh, millions, I guess, uh, I'm sure you have the statistics, but there are millions and millions of people in the United States who suffer from chronic uh, pain, whether it's related to illness or back pain or or whatever. Uh, So you have a new way out of, of, so that we don't have to suffer from chronic pain, but we don't also have to always use medications or pharmaceuticals. Uh, How do we do that? What is the big idea surrounding this? Yeah, it's a, it's a great new idea, Catherine, in, in that people um, can actually get themselves out of chronic pain through uh, retraining the brain. So, um, as it turns out, the pain centers in the brain are located in the limbic system, uh, which is in the midbrain, and it's actually the feeling and reacting brain. So, um, pain centers are actually located in the limbic system, so we can actually rewire the limbic system through our own free will, through a series of neuroplasticity-based exercises, to actually get the pain centers in the brain to start firing more normally. And when that happens, you can actually alleviate pain altogether. I mean, of course, you know, when we're talking about pain, we want to make sure that structurally that things are okay and that you're not having, you know, uh, you're not um, in an acute injury of any sort. But once the, you know, after time and, you know, the tissue is apparently healed or you've given enough time for um, the injury to heal, if you're still experiencing pain, then it could be a sign that the brain itself has taken on a pain pattern and is just stuck in that pain pattern. So we basically teach people how to get the brain um, out of that pain uh, pattern in the brain. So all of this started. Let's maybe we should start with with start with your um, 
yourself in the ravaging condition that I mentioned in the beginning when I was uh, in your bio, what happened to you? Because you were suffering from this horrific pain and, 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 then, and, and weren't able to relieve yourself, of the, relieve yourself of the pain. So what happened? How did, what happened to you? Well, let's hear your story. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, it started for me back in 2004. I was working as a core belief counselor in um, Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada. And uh, what happened is I moved into a new office, a new uh, counseling office, and I unfortunately moved into a sick building or a building that had mold in it. Now, what I also didn't realize is that my uh, my um, office was located right next door to the janitor's supply room where they also held all of the really nasty cleaning chemicals that they used for cleaning the building. And um, so I shared a wall with the janitor's supply room. I also didn't have proper ventilation in my office, and I didn't know that. Um, So when I moved in, I just, you know, painted it, my two coats of my favorite color green and bought all new furniture, and I I thought that I had really created this healing oasis, but, um, you know, the irony was lost on that when I started to become sick myself, and it started with um, general aches and pains, like muscle pain and joint pain and, you know, the kind of pain that you just can't alleviate no matter what you do, and I was very... Uh, knowledgeable about the mind and the body and, um, you know, I did everything that I could to get rid of pain and then it started as, as headaches and that wouldn't go away either and then I started to develop um, and at that point I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia which really just didn't give me any help. It gave me a label but I, there were actually no treatments that actually helped for that. And then over time, I recognized that I was becoming more sensitive to uh, scented products in my environment. So, Things like perfume or colognes would not just give me a headache, but a paralyzing headache and, you know, affect my breathing capacity and my actual cognitive capacity too, my ability to think. So I started to become sensitive to scented products and um, it escalated from perfumes and colognes to laundry detergent and underarm deodorant and hairspray and hair products and just about everything. So I was becoming increasingly sensitive to my environment, to things in my environment. So, you know, I changed all my cleaning products and changed my personal hygiene products because, you know, thank goodness we can go to the store now and buy stuff that's better for us. Um, But, you know, even though I uh, avoided a lot of exposures, um, the symptoms just kept getting worse and worse and uh, to the point where I became completely isolated. I had to stay in my own home. I couldn't work anymore. I could not go out without wearing a mask um, in case I was inadvertently exposed to anything. Because, you know, if I was walking, if I happened to walk by somebody who had perfume on, I might go into convulsions. Or if I happened to walk down the street and someone was doing their laundry and I caught a whiff of the dryer exhaust, I might also go into convulsions. So it became really difficult to navigate the world and uh, to navigate life itself. So I became pretty isolated. And um, yeah, and eventually I also uh, developed electromagnetic sensitivities, which is sensitivities to things like wireless or your cell phone. So uh, my now, life started Annie, to really did this happen? Was this precipitated by the toxins in your environment at the office initially because you were beside the janitor's room and everything and exposed to all of those toxins and then it was kind I of down? So. I think 
Yeah, I think so. In fact, I think it was a perfect storm, and this is what we usually say. It's the perfect storm of stressors that create limbic system impairment. So um, sometimes it can be a chemical exposure, like the one that I had in in the office, or a mold exposure. Uh, Sometimes it can be, uh, you know, severe emotional stress that precipitates this, or a combination thereof. Um, I think for me, it was a combination. About a year prior to moving into that office building, I was in a car accident. And um, although it wasn't really a high-impact accident, I had uh, injured my neck. It was probably about the fifth series of whiplash accidents that I'd had over the course of my life. And um, I was left with this kind of neurological shake in my neck that looked like Parkinson's for a little while. And even though I had it checked out and nobody could really give me any answers about it, I think that that was probably, you know, a precursor to developing limbic system impairment or certainly made my system more vulnerable than other people's might be. So I think between the car accident, the chemical exposure, um, uh, and the chemical exposure, that's when things really started to get bad, yes. Right. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that the brain reacts to any one of these things and that causes it, it really just causes the system to go haywire and it's that it becomes downhill from there often, which is what yeah. happened to you. Yeah, and it's interesting because when we look at stressors, when we look at stressors, we typically think of psychological stress, but it's not just psychological stress. It's emotional stress. It's physical stress, like, you know, maybe it's a car accident or maybe it's some kind of body injury or maybe it's a chemical exposure. Maybe it's a virus that you just never really fully recovered from. Maybe it's bacteria seen in Lyme disease, you know, it could be an or mold exposure. So it could be a combination of all of those things that really create the perfect storm for your limbic system to go into a chronic flight or flight state. So basically that's what happens is your brain gets triggered into this alarm state where the brain is constantly firing as if you're under threat all the time. And then we get diagnosed with, what what did you say, you were diagnosed with fibromyalgia. There are all of these sort of diagnoses that are conditions, I guess, that you would say um, that we get diagnosed with and then treated with medication. And Mm -hmm. are you saying that we're not really, yeah, addressing the real problem? Yeah. That, that's correct. So for me, I mean, I, I exhausted the healthcare system, the allopathic healthcare system. I went to all kinds of doctors and um, neurologists and, you know, what have you. And, you know, they couldn't really find anything wrong. And then I went down the, the alternative healthcare stream, too. And typically in the alternative healthcare model, um, multiple chemical sensitivities, which is the name for people that are really super sensitive to chemicals or scents in their environment, scented products, um, they typically see that as a toxic overload syndrome. So what they say is the body is like a barrel and you can only handle so many toxins and then once you've accumulated too many, then it starts to express the symptoms in the body. Well, you know, I think there's some truth to that, but what, what the other part of that is, is that most people don't address, in fact, none of them address, is the fact that the brain has been impacted by toxins or some kind of stressor. And that's the area that we focus on. So, you know, even though, you know, I did everything that everybody recommended, the detox, I detoxed to the moon and back. And if that theory were true, um, certainly I would have gotten better. But I didn't. In fact, the symptoms just continued to get worse. So even though I was clean as a whistle, I detoxed everything and did everything that they were telling me to do, it just kept getting worse. 
So, you know, even though detox in general might be a good thing and we want to make sure that we we do have a clean environment, um, certainly once the brain has been affected, we need to address the brain. And that's what we do is we address the brain in the flight or flight uh, response. So going back to different diagnoses, so people get diagnosed as fibromyalgia, multiple chemical sensitivities, chronic fatigue syndrome, um, a lot of anxiety disorders, uh, depression, food sensitivities, electromagnetic sensitivities. Um, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And yet, you know, at the kernel of all of that, I believe, is limbic system impairment, where the brain has just been catapulted into this flight-or-flight response, and it's stuck in that response. It's an unconscious response. People don't know that the brain is stuck there, but it really starts to affect um, all kinds of systems in our body. And, you know, that can be explained if you think about it, if you're in chronic fight or flight and um, let's say, you know, you're running away from a tiger, you know, when you're in chronic fight or flight, things like communication uh, are not important. So if you're running away from a tiger, it wouldn't be important for you to text your friends or call your mom to tell her, hey, you know, I'm running away from a tiger. So things like communication start to become impaired when you're in fight or flight. You know, equally, if you're running away from a tiger, you wouldn't um, be interested in eating because you're focus is, is on survival. It's strictly on survival and getting away. So, you know, a lot of people start to have absorption problems with food and uh, digestive problems and elimination problems, so detoxification problems as well. Um, and, you know, it makes sense that your immune system would start to be affected too because your immune system actually assists you in your ability to fight disease. But if your energy is going towards trying to survive, then your immune system won't be working as effectively as well. So um, it's like it a domino act. effect. Yeah. I mean, yeah. isn't it? I mean, that's what I'm sort of picturing, this kind of domino effect. Okay, so let's stop here and t- tell us, what do we do? How do we remap the brain? What do you, And take us through with patients, you know, maybe particular examples of patients of how you've done that and in terms of what you would do in terms of remapping the brain being, yeah. to become healthy. Yeah. Sure. Well, first, I think I'd like to start with the limbic system and, and tell you a little bit about the limbic system and what it's responsible for. So, again, it's the known as the feeling and reacting brain. It's located in the midbrain. There are a whole bunch of, you know, different structures that make up the limbic system. But basically what it does is it filters billions of bits of sensory and emotional stimuli in our environment, and it, it categorizes it into two very distinct categories, threat or no threat. So you can imagine if the neural pathways in the system are um, are affected in any way through trauma, it can start distorting information or, or information that would be normally categorized as a non-threat can be categorized as a threat. And that's give us when an example start- of a threat. I know you've been sort of doing this throughout, but what do you mean by sure. that? Like in layman's sure. terms. Sure. So, so, for yeah. example, for example, we know that chemicals in our environment are not healthy. For sure, that's that's an absolute truth. If we're we're looking for, you know, research to suggest that chemicals are bad for us, we've got it. But in the person who has chemical sensitivities or multiple chemical sensitivities, their brain picks up on the smallest molecule of chemical as if it's potentially life threatening. So that's what happened for me. 
to me, for instance. So, you know, I used to be able to wear perfume. Not that I would wear it now, now that I know what's in it, I'm not going to wear it. But back in the day, I did wear it. And then, you know, even if I didn't wear it, it wouldn't bother me. But when I had chemical sensitivities, because my brain was in that chronic fight or flight state, it recognized the smallest amount of molecules. Actually, it, it, it created an association between the chemicals in perfume with the cleaning agents that in the janitor supply room. So all of a sudden, any chemical became poisonous or toxic to me. And not only did it, like, you know, was it a little bit bothersome, it felt literally like I was being poisoned by my environment and my body reacted like that. So my sense of smell was through the roof. I could smell, I could smell chemicals from a block away. And I could detect exactly what was in everything. So, you know, when I say that it distorts sensory information, that's one way that it does that. You know, you can actually, it'll heighten your senses in a self-protective response. So oftentimes, other, other times people can be sensitive to foods, right? So they start developing sensitivities to foods. Um, we know what that's like. You know, all of a sudden you can't eat anything that resembles... Um, I don't know, banana or whatever that is. I mean, the brain can haphazardly just start creating associations, distorted associations with stimuli. Uh, For some people, they start to develop sensitivities to light or sensitivities to sound or sensitivities to touch or pain itself. So that actually expression of that uh, distortion uh, feels real. It is real. It's affecting various systems of the body, but there is a way to actually shut off that chronic maladapted stress response and, um, yeah, shut off that fight-or-flight response so that the body can go, the brain and body can go from a state of survival into a state of growth and repair again. So okay, and that's called dynamic neural retraining systems. Is that it? That's correct. That's correct. Okay. It's the dyna- yeah, dynamic neural retraining system. And this is a system that I've created myself that was part of my recovery system. So, you know, what I recognized while I was in, well, what I recognized when I was sick was that uh, my brain wasn't functioning normally. So even though I went to various doctors and they were telling me that it was this, it was that, it was, you know, toxic overload and take 10,000 supplements, which I did, um, nothing worked. But I, I noticed that I couldn't think the same anymore. I wasn't the same person. Cognitively, I was impaired. I, I couldn't read more than two paragraphs of a book, and then I, I'd finished reading, and then I had no idea what I just read. I couldn't remember anything, and I couldn't digest anything. I couldn't understand anything. And, and, and sometimes when I would go to speak, the words just wouldn't come out. Um, I, would, I would be saying, there's, you know, I'm look, I, I would want to say, I'm looking at a red tree out my window, and something else would come out like red window. Like it just, you know, my brain just wasn't firing properly. So I knew that there was something wrong with my brain and the way that my brain was... So this is the kind of thing when when you or when Mm -hmm. anyone else like you uh, goes to the doctor, uh, oftentimes they'll just say, well, you know, I mean, you're describing all these kind of weird symptoms. And so they'll tell you, well, it's just all in your head and it's, and, and they really... Really, I think that's often the case, uh, and you're sort of just left, well, well, you know, with okay, it's all in my head. What does that mean? I mean, because especially when you're diag, and I go back to some of these diagnoses, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, they're all kind of like. And I'm not trying to dismiss them, but sometimes it's very mm-hmm. sounds very generalized, and it's sort of like, um, so. 
Let's take, yeah, I, I, I think always, it's just because, you know, like, as a social worker, I'd like to get into the individual because we don't have that much time left. Okay. How does this work? What do you do? Sure. What, take us through with, so, with some for, examples of patients and how this particular, as you describe it, dynamic neural retraining systems, how does it work in the individual Sure, patient. absolutely. Well, first, yeah. you know, it's a series of um, of steps that we show people. It's a seri- it's a neural rehabilitation program. So it's an experiential program, which is really hard to describe in words. So it's something that you have to experience for yourself. However, there are elements within that that I can talk about. First of all, you have to understand uh, what limbic system impairment looks like. So how do you know that you're in symptoms? Like how do you know when you're having symptoms? Or how do you know if you have limbic system impairment? I mean, short of getting a brain scan, what we're looking at is a collection of symptoms that would that would suggest that this area of your brain is not working functionally. Then once you look at that, you go, okay, so what are the patterns that I'm running that could be indicative that I'm in limbic system impairment or that the brain is stuck in this chronic fight or flight response? So we'd look at thought patterns, emotional patterns, and behavioral patterns that really might indicate that your brain is stuck in that fight or flight response. So things like catastrophic thinking. Um, you're stuck in emotions that are, are uh, you know, concerned with survival, like worry, anxiety, fear. Uh, your thought patterns are consumed by, you know, your state of health and your future state of health, you know. So there are ways that we can really identify if, if the brain is stuck in those patterns. And then we teach people tools, very practical tools, to structurally and chemically change the brain. Because you want to do both in order to make lasting changes in the brain. And we, we understand that our thoughts and our emotions and our feelings really act back on the brain in a very specific way. And I'll give you an example of that with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. So Leonardo DiCaprio was training for his role in The Aviator, where he played Howard Hughes, who had a severe case of OCD or obsessive-compulsive disorder. And Leonardo trained with Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz, who's a guru of OCD. And Leonardo did such a great job at character acting, figuring out how someone thinks who has OCD, how, how they feel and how they behave, that he actually developed OCD. So it was rumored that he had to work with uh, Jeffrey Schwartz for up to a year after he finished uh, the movie in order to reverse what he had done to his brain through character acting. So we know that our thoughts, our emotions, and behaviors are very real. They have very real effects on the brain. So we teach people through thought, emotion, and behavior how to act back on the brain to structurally change limbic system firing and to stop that flight-or-flight mechanism from from, um, firing too rapidly and too often. So, uh, the so that's thing the that perfect like example is, of the plasticity of the brain. I, I mean, yeah, that's a, ex- uh, yeah, that is like uh, yeah, it's, what it's, a story. It's, yeah, that he actually yeah, it's amazing. And, yeah began to suffer and, from OCD. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's not an overnight fix. Like this is, it's not a magic pill. Uh, the results can sometimes seem miraculous because people get their lives back who've been sick for sometimes over twenty years, which is amazing. Uh, but it's a, it, you know, we ask people to commit to it for at least six months. Like it's a, you know, a very, um, you know, it doesn't take Olympic energy, but it does take Olympic commitment. Like you have to be committed to doing this exercise. It's like recovering from a stroke. It doesn't happen overnight, right? So you have to put in a committed effort every day and go through the training every day. But, um, you know, if you do that, your brain has no choice but to make the changes because you're actually guiding it. It's like teaching the brain a new language. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing, really. So, Annie, so tell me, how do people 
people respond to this initially? I mean, as you say, it's like, in a, and I've, I've worked in rehabilitation as a social worker for, uh, you know, physical dis- stroke patients, for instance. So you really have to work at it. I mean, and you have to obviously believe in it. What, you know, is it difficult for patients to do that and to give up or, or want to give up? I mean, there has to be a whole psychological component to that because it must be really difficult and really frustrating. Yeah, I mean, for some some people are just you know they're they've they're actually really motivated. Some people are really motivated because they're tired of being sick. They're just really tired of being sick. And when you took take a look at you know the energy that's involved in neurorehabilitation, uh, it's nowhere near the amount of energy that's involved in trying just to cope with a chronic illness. That takes a lot of energy just to cope with a chronic illness. So if we redirect the energy into uh, rehabilitation, it's it's actually, you know, it works quite well. Uh, for people that need motivation, we offer them assistance. We have coaching. We have, um, you know, people can take the program at home through a 14-hour instructional DVD that we've created, or they can come to a five-day immersion program that we hold throughout Canada and the United States and sometimes in Europe as well. Where, they get, where they're really immersed in uh, the program, they have you know all of the knowledge that they need to move forward in this rehabilitation process. And um, yeah, we just create a really supportive uh, environment for them to move forward. And you know, I've watched. I, I, I always say I'm in a very blessed position to be able to witness what other people would think are mir- medical miracles every day. But when you understand the brain, and like you said, when you understand that domino effect of what can be happening, and you address the illness at the kernel, which is brain function, then the systems of the body can start to change again, and people can go from being disabled to actually thriving in their life. Mm-hmm. All right, so we want to. We have only a couple minutes left, so I, I, I want to. Uh... I mentioned the name of the, the book again because uh, people can buy the book. Can they buy the online bookstores everywhere? Uh, they can buy it through Amazon or they can buy it directly through our website at uh, retrainingthebrain.com. Okay, it's Wired for Healing, Remapping the Brain to Recover from Chronic and Mysterious Illnesses. Um, and I've been talking to Annie Hopper. Uh, any other websites we should go to for information that's specifically related here in the United States well you're in Canada but uh, or, or that's 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 the website retraining the brain yeah if you, if you go to our main website you can buy the book from our website you can uh, look at um, the instructional DVD that we offer through our website you can look at upcoming programs that will be advertised on the website we keep our programs really small between 20 and 30 people so that we create a very intimate setting for people so they get individualized attention throughout the um, five days in our what we call neuroplasticity boot camp programs. Um, and yeah, I would say, you know, that's definitely the gold standard in taking the program. However, lots of people have recovered just with the DVDs themselves. So it's Fantastic. really great. Thanks. So I have to cut you off because we've got 30 seconds left or they're going to cut me off. Anyway, uh, thanks so much for being on the show today. Annie Hopper, oh. Wired for Healing. I'm Thank Catherine you, Catherine. Zock, social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zock Show. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is healthy aging and wellness expert, Dr. Carrie Engelbright, author of CNA, Nursing Assistant Certification and Workbook and workbook. Healthcare as we know it is rapidly changing. Due to rising costs, the average hospital stay has decreased dramatically with an increase in outpatient or day surgeries taking its place. Dr. Carrie Engelbright is an expert in the field of healthy aging and wellness of life. She teaches and raises awareness about the determinants of good health, including health literacy, how to better understand the language of healthcare in order to navigate the healthcare system effectively. Uh, Dr. Engelbright lead as the lead faculty at Mid-State Technical College, Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Dr. Carrie Engelbright. Thank you, Catherine. It's great to be here. All right, so healthcare, it is no secret, healthcare is changing, and we're sort of all, I think, I always think about it as being caught, kind of caught in the mire of healthcare. Uh, it's, it's a, and as you say, we do a lot of uh, taking care of ourselves at home. We have surgeries, we go home the next day, uh, we're caregivers to the elderly. Uh, it's just a whole, uh, you know, myriad of things that we're not really prepared to do 
uh, at least I'll say here, I think in the United States. So we have a lot of problems. So let's talk about first, the first question probably is what are the determinants of good health? Um, And what is the uh, the second part of that is, I guess I would ask you is what are the uh, the, uh, biggest problems facing us today in healthcare or in our healthcare system? So there are a lot of different determinants, and that just means things that shape us uh, as to uh, how we age in a healthy manner. The largest determinants are going to be genetic, environmental, and social determinants. Genetics are just that. It's the genes that we're born with, those characteristics that we inherited from our parents. But then there's also these epigenetic changes that occur with either our own lifestyle choices or life experience or even those based on our previous familial life experiences or choices. So that could be uh, the choices that our parents or our grandparents have made, and that's affecting our health. So epigenetics literally translates to above the gene, and it basically, it's an emerging science, so we're, we're really looking at this a little bit deeper now. But basically what it means is there's these little chemical markers on our genes, and those are either activated or inactivated based on those experiences or those lifestyle choices. So basically, right, so give us an example of that. What would, be a, what would be a choice that our parents or our grandparents made that would affect our genes? Yeah, great question. So uh, we can take the example of famine. So let's say our grandparents were uh, exposed to a time period where there was famine, and so they just didn't get enough to eat. We can see a higher incidence of coronary artery disease and obesity in the children and grandchildren of those individuals. Or people that were exposed to a trauma, let's say a war or even the Holocaust, Uh, This emerging science is demonstrating that the children and the grandchildren can actually suffer from anxiety and depression based on those experiences. So, you know, if you stop and think about what's going on in our world today and how that could really shape future generations, that's, you know, it it can be pretty large in terms of ramifications. Then there's also these environmental determinants that we need to look at, and those that's just our physical de- environment. That's things like being exposed to noise pollution or light pollution, air pollution, things like that. We know that if we are exposed to these types of pollution, we're not going to age as healthy as we probably could have. And a great example of that that I like to use is during the 1996 Atlanta Olympic Games, the uh, representatives in Atlanta had asked the residents of the community to voluntarily take mass transit instead of their private vehicle use because they knew that, that all of these athletes were coming into town and they needed to perform at their highest level possible. So they wanted to bring down this air pollution. Well, in doing so, we saw a really remarkable effect within the community. The residents complied. They actually did take mass transit more than their private vehicle. Air pollution rates came down, but we, what we saw was a decreased admission rate and access to emergency services for children and adolescents with asthma. So all of those environmental influences really do impact our state of health and well-being and how we age in a healthy manner. And then finally, there's these social determinants of health, and I like to explain that as things that we have access to. So if you have access to a safe neighborhood, to green space to play in, 
to quality schools, walkable communities, living wage jobs, things like that, you're going to live longer. You're going to age in a more healthy manner than those people that do not have access to a safe neighborhood or quality schools or those green spaces. And really that boils down to the social gradient of health. And the social gradient basically just means that you, if you have less resources, you're going to have poorer health outcomes. When compared to those that have more resources, you're going to have better health outcomes. And this really makes a huge difference because as we see the aging population going into this, you know, the baby boomer population is going into this above 65-year-old category, that's going to account for about 20% of our population by, the, by 2030. That's what the projections are. So if we're not making these choices or having access to these healthy communities now, we're not going to age in a healthy manner. And that just means that we're going to have more chronic illness as we age. Is anyone listening to this? It just seems, I mean, as you're talking about it and you're breaking it down, you know, the determinants of health, it seems to make so much sense. But it it seems even when we, you know, if we listen to the mass media or even on, uh, you know, um, radio, television, we, we don't really hear that. We don't hear it put in the way that you just described it because it's really... I think you say it so well, and it's so simple to understand, and it makes so much sense. But we seem to be not hearing it and reacting in the opposite way. I mean, we are, are to me anyway, as a society, as a culture. Right. Yeah, and, and I completely agree. We don't get the message out as well as we probably could. Uh, really, that boils down to public health messaging, uh, and public health is primary prevention. So our society puts a lot of weight and a lot of financial resources into treating disease, and we do not put a lot of weight or financial resources into preventing disease before it starts. So sometimes it's really hard or obtuse for that local official to make the case for a better green space area for a neighborhood when there's all these other pressing issues, right? Knowing, though, that if we make that green space available to kids uh, and and families to play, they're going to lead a healthier life, they're going to need less medications, and they're going to need, they're going to have less chronic illness as they age. So, you know, uh, you're right. A lot of that is messaging uh, and really understanding that, you know, primary prevention is so much more cost effective than that tertiary treatment. It's difficult to show people, I guess, in primary prevention, like they don't see it, they don't feel it. It's sort of like I'm thinking as you're talking about going back to like when uh, smoking, stop smoking. Well, people, you know, they really, at that time, we didn't have maybe access to the kinds of x-rays that you can see so you actually can see the damage done to your lungs so if you couldn't see it you, you didn't really feel it until it was too late and you you know got lung cancer or became sick or had asthma or whatever it was because it, it just it wasn't it was sort of an invis it was invisible you know it was invisible Absolutely. in terms of the harm you were doing to your body 
Yep, and that is a great example uh, of public health initiative. So if you if you go back to those days where smoking was the social norm, and uh, you know even went so far as doctors or providers encouraging women to smoke while they were pregnant, so they didn't gain as much weight. Obviously, we know that that is not a good thing, and we should not be yes. encouraging pregnant moms to smoke. But it has taken a good thirty years to swing that pendulum, so that now it is not the social norm. So that's the other difficult part of primary prevention is that really you're changing social norms and those things take a long time. The biggest effect we see in primary prevention is not individual work. It's not one-on-one, the public health nurse or the provider saying to the pregnant mom, you shouldn't smoke. But the biggest bang for our buck are in the the policy choices, either at the community or the societal level. So if you look at things like making smoking uh, illegal in bars and restaurants and public spaces, that's going to limit the opportunity for people to smoke and therefore change the social, social culture. So if you can look at that higher level policy change, that really we get more bang for our buck when we do that. Well, it seems to me that in this administration, we, and I'm sort of repeating myself, we're going in the opposite direction. Uh, there are some real challenges today. Uh, and, and when I talk about those social determinants of health and access to that phrase, really what that boils down to is what the individual, the community, and the society as a whole will value So if your community will value that green space, they will allot financial resources to that green space. If your society will value access to health care or, you know, different social policy change, and that's the way people vote, and and that's where financial resources will be allocated. So it, it boils down to values. So we can do, and I guess one of the things, uh, at least uh, one of the things we can, when you say it boils down to communities, so each community can take the responsibility for becoming healthy community or providing healthy, uh, providing a healthy environment for their communities and, and making a difference yep. to obvious. And yeah. with the smoking example, that was a great example. I'm, I'm from the state of Wisconsin and before we had a statewide ban in public places, Individual communities were coming together and saying, we don't want our restaurant workers exposed to secondhand smoke so that they have lung cancer by the age of 60. We're going to come together and say that this is, this is valued, this is important to us as a community, and we're not going to allow it. So we started to see these smoking bans in individual communities, and that kind of took, took root and then went to the state level. So, all right. We that where that's uh, that's our environment, okay, and we do our so our social determinants. Um, what do we do? And I'm kind of backtracking a little, but what do we do about the epigenetics? How do we how, like things that we didn't actually make? Say our grandparents made choices, right. and they were ended yeah. up being poor choices for us. Is there any way we can reverse that? Absolutely. So we can make our own lifestyle choices. So just because we're predisposed to potentially, uh, you know, let's use the example of anxiety and depression. Maybe we are predisposed to expressing that. 
there are definitely things that you can do to help prevent that or to help control that. So if you look at health and well-being as multidimensional, there, there's so many different ways um, of looking at it that, that comes into play. So there's the emotional dimension, the environmental dimension, the physical dimension, et cetera, the social dimension. So if you look at perhaps the emotional dimension is something that you need to work on because you know that you are prone to developing depression or, or suffering from anxiety, then there's things that you can be proactive to do to take control of that. So you can, um, you know, practice mindfulness or meditation, join a yoga class, or make sure that the other areas of your health and wellness are taken care of. So if you are physically active, we know that you have lesser rates of depression and anxiety. So maybe increasing that physical activity that you do on a daily basis can help that. But you're right. The genetic portion is really the smallest part that we have the least amount of control over. The environmental and the social determinants are what we have a larger effect on. And basically those boil down to those lifestyle choices that we make on a day-to-day basis. So that yeah, I you know yep. I have a friend who has sort of done just what you're talking about because uh, there's a, a history of depression in her family, and knowing that has been very mindful about doing mindfulness exercises, being aware that she uh, may have a, a genetic uh, predisposition to depression and and does the things that you describe. So, and I think it so that. You know, when she's 60 years old, uh, she, you know, hopefully will not be diagnosed with the same kind of depression that her mother and her grandmother were. So, yeah, I mean, those are things we do have, as you say, some control over. As long as we right. have a good family history and are aware of it, no, uh, and you know, which is not always the case. But um, what about obesity? You mentioned that. So obesity obviously is is a problem. About 50% of our population is either obese or overweight. And when we have people in those two categories, then it is more likely that they do have complications from that, including uh, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. But they're also going to have other things like osteoarthritis, which is going to limit their mobility. So it's kind of like this, this trickle-down effect that if you have, if you're overweight or have obesity issues, then you're probably going to have these chronic multiple, chronic disease, perhaps multiple, which means you're going to have to have medications for those, and you're also going to have a decrease in mobility. So again, the best way to, to take care of that problem is primary prevention and staying within that normal BMI range, if at all possible. So ways to accomplish that are getting at least 150 minutes of moderate intensive aerobic physical activity throughout the week. And that's things like going for walks. And some people may say, wow, 150 minutes, that is just way too much. I can't tackle that. But really, if you just set aside 20 to 30 minutes a day to go for a brisk walk, maybe join a swim class or a biking class, go to 
uh, your local ADRC or YMCA and join uh, an older adult silver sneaker fitness class, you can find that you can easily implement that 150 minutes into your week. And, and even if 30 minutes sounds like too much, break that up into 10 minutes at a time. You'll get the same benefit from that. So take a 10-minute brisk walk around the block a few times or go out to the mailbox, things like that. We also need to see older adults doing balance training and stretching two to three days a week, and that's really important so that we don't uh, go into the the fall risk category. And especially with obesity, your center of gravity is going to be off a little bit, which means you're at higher risk for falls. Falls are very dangerous for older adults. They're one of the largest killer of older adults, and it's not the fall itself. It's because of that immobility that comes after the fall. So if you're immobile, you're more at risk for respiratory illness, pneumonia, blood clots, things like that. So that's a real slippery slope. Balance training, again, that's an easy thing to do. You can do a yoga fitness class in your own home. I mean, they're streaming on Netflix and Amazon right now. You can join your local YMCA or senior center for classes. Or you can do really simple things at home, like getting up from a chair without using the arms. Do that several times a day. That'll strengthen your core. Or you could um, do things like holding on to a chair to start off with, but just holding up a leg in the air, one leg in the air, and trying to maintain your balance, and then let go of the chair if you can. So simple balance training, things like that, are really important for the older adult. And then, of course, this muscle strengthening, and that's two days a week that the, the individual should be working on that. And muscle strength, you know, a lot of people cringe and say, well, I can't lift weights, you know, I'm, I'm too old for that. You don't have to lift weights. You can get those great little exercise bands and, and use those at home. Again, you can join a class. Or you can even do simple things at home like cleaning out some milk jugs and filling them up with sand or dried beans and using those to do bicep curls. So really easy things that you can do at home or get out into the community and enjoy with friends to accomplish this, to try and either um, prevent ob- obesity or to uh, rein that problem in a little bit. So what you're saying is most people, and I hear the excuses probably as a social worker, uh, is that it's either too expensive, I can't do it, it's too much, it costs too much, which you're saying, of course, it doesn't cost too much. You can spend a lot of money if you want to. You can join expensive gyms. You can do a whole lot of things. Or you can do a lot of this stuff just in your own house. Or they say it takes up too much time, which it doesn't have to. You're not, you know, walking 20 minutes a day, really, you should be walking 20 minutes a day anyway. Uh, right. <laughs> so all of this stuff is, is really, you have a lot of choices. You can do it online, as you say. You can do, I mean, there's really, so they're really kind of, if you break it down, there really aren't too many excuses in terms of making some pretty good choices. They don't have to be overwhelmingly uh, rigid or, and I think what people, and one last thing, I think what people say is, you know what, 
well, I missed it today. I didn't do it, so I'm not doing it tomorrow. Well, if you can't do it three times a week, you could do it once a week. That's still better than not doing it at all or exercising or, uh, you know, as you're describing it. Um, For sure. Anything is better than nothing. Yeah. You know, um, if, if I were to tell people I have a magic pill that can lower your risk of cardiovascular disease, lower your blood sugar, lower your blood pressure, reduce your risk of stroke, reduce your risk of cancer, and make you more a more happy person, people would be lining up at my door, right? <laughs> but it's not a magic pill. It is carving out that time and setting goals and mitigating those, beha- those barriers that you were talking about and just getting out there and doing it. Do you think that people are trying to do that or are doing it I mean I you know I look I talk about this all the time in the show about obesity and obese children and overweight and we just still I don't know if those statistics have sort of uh, have reached are we still going in the direction of having more more and more people uh, becoming obese or have we are we or not yeah I really think that people are striving to make the right choices I think the um, the society in which we're living in right now makes those choices more difficult because you know you have two parent family or you have a family who where both parents are working maybe more than one job. You're juggling childcare and getting kids to soccer practice and you know doing all of your responsibilities for work and home and for your children. And it's just a really busy lifestyle. So when somebody like me says 150 minutes, they just feel really overwhelmed. Like, I, I don't have time to sleep, let alone to add that to my day. But if you look at it as, okay, well, I've got two 15-minute breaks on, on my work day. I'm going to take those two 15-minute breaks, and I'm going to go for a walk. So, you know, trying to figure out what your lifestyle is and how you can fit that in is a really important thing. The other Maybe you shouldn't that, say 150 mm-hmm. minutes. It does sound overwhelming. You should say the two the two breaks on your <laughs> right. lunchtime. Start out with that because that does sound a little bit better than 150 of anything sounds like a lot, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, the, the food choices that we have right now, are, the way our society is set up is it's a lot cheaper to shop in the interior of a grocery store than it is the perimeter of the grocery store. And the perimeter is where you find all of your fresh food items. So your produce, your your dairy, your meats, and your bakery section, right? And in the center of the grocery store are pretty much all the highly processed foods that come in a bag or a box or a can. But, you know, if you are having to feed a family of five on a budget, that's where you go to get your foods because you can get way much more in your cart in that inside part of the grocery store than you can if you go around the perimeter. So again, it's what our society values. It's a lot cheaper to buy the two-pound bag of potato chips or pretzels than it is to buy two pounds of apples. So So there's that consideration I'm one of those people who looks into everybody's cart, and if I see stuff... (laughs) 
I saw a lady filled with those four pounds of potato chips, and I really wanted to say something. Of course, I never would, but uh, piles right. of the soft drinks in different colors, and it was really it yeah. was terrible. But I didn't say anything. And but anyway, yeah, we have a couple minutes left. The other left. part of the problem is if you're not raised to cook with those food items from the perimeter, then you're yeah. not going to know how to do it, and you're going to feel like, oh, I'm going to spend this amount of money on something that my kids might not like, I might not like, I might ruin when I cook it. Uh, so, so yeah, instead of getting the bag of potatoes, they get the potato chips because they know their kids will eat it and it won't be a fight. Exactly. Well, we have, yeah. as I say, we have a couple of minutes left, so more information. Give us a website we can go to, uh, a, you know, that we can access interma- information about what we've been talking about and also uh, about your book. Yep, you can just Google CNA Carrie Engelbright, and the, the website should come up. August Learning Solutions is the publisher, and you'll be able to see my bio on there and um, the ability to check out my book and see if it interests you. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, I, I think it, I just have to say, I think the work that you are doing is, is really important, and so we do want to get the word out there and just... Uh, uh, I, listeners, go to those websites and um, you can get more information about uh, Dr. Engelbright's work. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Just a couple other great resources of information before I leave. The World Health Organization, the CDC, Healthy People 2020, MyPlate, and SuperTracker are all really great websites to check out. Great. Thanks. Thank I'm you. Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.